Well, I invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 1, as last week we started our new series in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, timing-wise, we are working this out to consider these birth narratives um, through this Christmas season, and we'll continue through the book of Matthew. But today we come to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the well-known account with Joseph here. Now, typically, if anyone asks the question, can you learn something new, that's a scary thing because are we saying anything new throughout history that has not already been said? That would be a dangerous thing if it's brand new. But sometimes it's really good to see in the Scripture certain ties and connections of what the author is doing that we may not have seen before. And I think there's a surprising one here today in light of Joseph and um, something that was embedded here to teach about the nation of Israel that we're going to be looking at carefully. So let's give our attention to um, the word of the Lord beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Well, we live uh, in a day of great confusion over the mission of Christianity, the mission of Christ. Um, it's such an important subject right out of the gates when we're looking at the birth narratives of Christ and how that mission is captured. That's what we have here before us this morning. But you don't have to read very far in social media and all the news outlets for Christians that there is endless fighting happening right now over the mission of Christianity. There are great calls, you know, to reclaim the power structures of America and to Reclaim the power structures and take back Washington for the glory of Christ. That's hot at the moment. This challenge was no different in the world that Christ stepped into. Most writers and commentators recognize that at the time of the birth of Christ, tensions were exceptionally high and people were seriously considering that the time of the Messiah was near and coming to restore the kingdom to Israel. It's what they all wanted. It's what they all had hoped for. Will you finally restore the greatness of our kingdom? What makes much of these accounts so troubling is that few in Israel seem to get the message. Few in Israel seem to get the message as a whole. That few seem to be looking for the Messiah to save them from their sins. 
How could you miss that? How could that be sidelined? How could that lose a drive in people? Well, that's what would happen. They were looking, this is what we'll even move into next time, chapter 2. They were looking at the glory of what Herod did and restored and his orations and his glory. This is as good as they thought it was going to get in some ways. It could get. So they were deeply troubled when the Messiah came. Because what would that mean for what Herod had accomplished? Well, that's why studying the birth narratives of Christ are so important, precisely because we have a great emphasis on identity and mission. We have a great uh, emphasis on those crucial things to set the whole trajectory of Christ's ministry and to keep us in line for what's most important. And that's what I want to consider with you um, this morning. We looked at last time the thing that Matthew is giving great attention to, one of the driving purposes of his book, and it was to confront the religion of the Pharisees, a self-righteous club, that those shepherds in Israel did not lead people to the Savior. They did not lead people to come to their Lord and receive the forgiveness of sins in the house of prayer. And these were the things that God had promised long ago in the prophets that he would recover. Well, that's before us this morning. God's great provision of the Savior to Israel in redeeming us from our sins so that we might enjoy the truth that God has indeed satisfied his justice and wrath. And that he has fulfilled in sending his son, his promise, the promised Messiah, so that we would be brought back into the acceptable year of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, The year of jubilee, if you will. Well, that is unfolding before us in the story of Mary and Joseph. And this morning, we want to continue that emphasis uh, that we began with last case, showcasing the Messiah's arrival by making clear what his conception means and what his mission accomplishes and what his identity says to us. There's your three points. Did you catch that? What his uh, conception means and what his mission accomplishes and what his identity says to us as we study here this birth narrative of Christ. Last time, the genealogy was shocking. Some of those figures that were highlighted, I said, you never want in your family tree. Never want Rahab the harlot as your mom. We considered some of those stories in the Old Testament that showcased sinful situations that at times make us even uncomfortable to preach. Well, that was before us in Matthew chapter 1. That was all purposeful, of course. Matthew was directly confronting the religion of the Pharisees, as I said, that had become a system of self-righteousness. And and they didn't understand the need for the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah. They believed that to the degree, this had actually become a common, common belief in Israel, to the degree that the law of God was being kept, that would usher in the Messiah. And they had missed the whole message of the Old Testament. How could you miss the whole message of the Old Testament, and have the Scriptures. Did anyone know or care that the wrath of God abided on Israel for her unbelief? Did anyone care what the genealogy was saying? 
That third grouping in the genealogy of the 14, that third set of 14s, as I said last time, presented a downward spiral. That's why those names are not known. Presented a downward spiral of Israel into darkness and curse. Verse 12 said, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. That was a huge problem. That rebellion had become so bad in Israel that the whole Davidic line was cursed. Jeremiah 22, talking of Jeconiah. Record this man as childless. A man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Problem. (laughs) Big problem. That verse essentially said, the whole project's cursed. The whole kingship is cursed. That had banned that there would ever be on the royal line a descendant. What caused that? How could that be solved? (laughs) Well, on a merely human level, it was over for Israel. It seemed that the Davidic promise of a king was impossible, and how could this be overcome? And that's why Matthew chapter 1 is so important. It's it's straightening things out. It's helping us to, to... helping Israel, because it's the most Jewish book, to again focus on what was most important. After the long presentation of the royal line, now we begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that solves these huge dilemmas of the rebellion of Israel and the curse. And that's where chapter, uh, verse 18 offsets everything so powerfully. You'll notice it. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is totally contrary to any of the previous births (laughs) that had just been mentioned. This is going to be a remarkable birth. Um, You can feel Matthew's joy in telling the story. You can feel Matthew excited to tell this particular story, which means that whatever is now to be described is overcoming that curse on the Davidic line of that third set of 14s and provides the greatest news that could ever be given to Israel. The sort of summary statement follows. When his mother Mary, notice this, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Matthew interjects something here to capture for a moment the deep struggle of Joseph. Notice in verse 19, we read that her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What a pain to go through. What a hardship to go through. Why didn't the angel just come along and tell him before? Really? Why put him through this? Why didn't he just say it? Why did he wait? 
I mean, if it didn't happen and she's innocent, why capture Joseph's struggle? In one sense, of course, we see how God tests us. Well, that's one way you could go with it. It's quite a moment. I, I, I got stuck here this week and read it for family devotions, and, and we all came to the conclusion, yeah, Dad, you're, you're not explaining this very well. I've got to preach this in a few days. You know, It's not what you want to hear. I walked away thinking, I'm missing something. I am missing something. Why would the Bible give attention to this moment? Can you imagine that moment just for a minute? You have to appreciate, of course, how marriage worked in Jewish culture. We read this thinking, you know, this is the, um, this is the engagement period, period, and this is not the engagement period. Um, I told you in college I was, I was engaged to a gal, and she was blind to how good she had it when she dumped me. And, I, and she didn't want to give the ring back. And I got that ring back. It's a lot of work. There was uh, no binding commitment in that period. And you say, praise God that it happened that way, for God planned something so much better for me. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife now, and I've earned a lot of points from the pulpit this morning. The betrothal was a firm and a binding commitment. It's as if you're married. It came with witnesses. During the year of the betrothal, a woman stayed with her family, of course. And um, if there was any infidelity during that time... Deuteronomy, if you're following the law strictly, if there's any infidelity during that time, Deuteronomy 22, she would have been punished as an adulteress. And, and in, had they had the reins of power, she would have been stoned. Then the man, after that first part of marriage, would take her into his home. And that's what Matthew is here zeroing in on. We read that before they came together, more literally, she was found out. In other words, somehow before the angel told Joseph that who was in her is from the Holy Spirit, Joseph found out as she lived with her parents, she's with a child. I can't imagine the horror of that. I don't know too many men who would not be furious. Do you? He could institute, he had a couple options. He could institute a lawsuit and publicly shame her. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard style. I know very few today who wouldn't do something like this. That's um, Deuteronomy 22. The strict application, again, would be shame her. And if it were living back in the theocracy as they once enjoyed it, stoning. There was another option, according to Deuteronomy 24. If a man found any indecency in his one he's betrothed to, he could give her a bill of divorcement 
and dismiss her quietly out of his house. So here's the shocking thing. Contrary to all these sinful situations in the genealogy, we read that Joseph was a righteous man. It zeroes in, Matthew zeroes in on the character of this this really good man. And I think we're all intended to say, what man is there like this? The imagery of Joseph is that he's a very morally, God-fearing, law-honoring man. And he loved her. Oh, he loved her. He cared for his bride. This this good man in all respects, this really good man, this good husband decided not to shame her, but to divorce her quietly. Give her a certificate of divorce and divorce her quietly. Again, why didn't the angel just tell him? Why why capture all this? Why why do this? And, And any expositor should say, you know, there's nothing unimportant that the author does. Why his character? Why is it highlighted? Why the struggle here? What is the message? And I had never given thought about this before, but I think God was embedding something here really important for Israel and for us. Whose story is this? Whose story? It's Israel's story. What was Israel to the Lord? How could they miss this? The whole nation was described in the Old Testament as an adulterous bride. Hosea 1. Israel is guilty of the vilest adultery. In departing from the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah 3. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? I got to tell you about this. She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. But she didn't. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet, struggle. I saw that her unfaithful sister had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery Because Israel's immorality mattered little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with every piece of stone and wood. God could have, Old Covenant style, had her destroyed. The whole sense of Jeremiah 3 is, if you read it carefully, it's a whole passage on this, whole chapter on this, Intense struggle of the Lord. But it's not really a struggle, you understand. It's communicating something. He didn't want to do this. 
He's a good husband. Instead of writing her off, think of Hosea 3. I mean, this isn't just the only place. Love your wife again, Hosea, even though she's loved by others and has committed adultery. Love her as I, the Lord, love Israel, even though they've turned to other gods and have eaten raisin cakes. You get this intense struggle. And in the midst of these passages, he keeps saying this. Return, O faithless Israel. I'm your husband. I'm quoting. I won't be angry. What husband says that? What husband's ever said that? What husband in this scenario would say that? Think of the proverb, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Only acknowledge your guilt, said the Lord, and in that day it shall not come to mind or be remembered. Oh, wow. And you know what I'll do? I'll establish my throne. Call me father. Call me father. Return, O faithless sons, and I'll heal your faithlessness. Truly, the the Lord our God, they said, is the salvation of Israel. I think they completely forgot that before the Lord, they were the unfaithful bride. But how could they be healed? And that's this story. The angel says, Joseph, the conception in her is that of the Holy Spirit. This, the Lord our God, has come down as the salvation of Israel. Quoting Luke, he's overshadowed that womb and the conception is not through infidelity. It's from the Spirit. The child born to you is holy. The whole problem of Israel's infidelity is addressed here. The curse is overcome. The child is not Joseph's. This is the Son of God from heaven. Come for what purpose? And that's why the mission is emphasized, beloved. That's why the mission of the Messiah is emphasized. It's what William Barclay once said. Jesus was not so much the man born to be king as he was the man born to be the Savior. And I think that's what's captured here. Joseph, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call his name Jesus. For his great mission will be to save his people from all their sins. What kind of God is this? By doing that, he just, Joseph adopted Christ so that he did come from the royal line, overcoming the curse because it wasn't through Joseph. Joseph was not the father. And this is how Israel would be healed. This is how Israel would be healed. This is, this is Psalm 130. <laughs> Israel, turn and put your hope in the Lord for he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He will do it. 
This should make us sit in awe today. The reality is, we're all an unfaithful bride. When we think of adultery, we think physically. When the Lord lays the charges against us, it goes well beyond just physical. Remember what James said, adulteresses, adulterers and adulteresses. Think of all the sins in our lives that we commit. Think of the rebellion. You know, every sin in your life is a rebellion. What greatly burdens you? Are you worried about Jesus reclaiming America right now? Are we wanting a show from him when we come to worship? What do we want? What do we think this is about? How faithful have you been? Let's let's straighten things out here. How faithful have you been? Faithful have I been? Well, reality is, we all have countless idols we've bowed to. You've disregarded the Sabbath at times. You've given yourself for pleasure and pleasure-seeking. If you have any sensitivity to this, do you know that every single sin that you have done in your life, if you even see it, idolatry and immorality, whatever form it takes, is adultery? These genealogies showcase Rahab the whore and Ruth the Moabitess and sinful situations like this for a reason. You know what God could have done to you? What God could have done to me. Could have put you away forever. Does God love you? You sin so carelessly. You've done the same sins over and over. Definitely haven't loved Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does God love you? Can He? Oh, I've, and you've done enough for him to turn on wrath any moment. But what is he like to you? What did he do for you? Through all that, he has continued to say to you, return to me. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden give you rest. I know what you deserve. I'll forgive you. I'll wash you. You've got a faithful husband. Everything you've done, he gave you everything. He gave the ultimate provision for the bride he loved. He gave his son to redeem that bride. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from its curse, to forgive us and heal us because he doesn't want to kill you or give you a certificate of divorce. 
Joseph represents to us the kind of husband God is to his people. Instead of putting us away, the Lord himself came (laughs) and rescued his bride. And that was the promise of Jeremiah. In the midst of Jeremiah 3, the Lord is our salvation. The Lord God. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that's what Israel did not see. Their problems were not ultimately political. Their problems were not Rome. Their problems were not Herod. Their problems were not Pilate. Their problems were not Caesar. Their problem was God. They weren't right with Him. Are you right with Him today? And God answers us. And the marvel is who he would send to bring reconciliation. Quoting Isaiah, his identity, all this was to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. There shall be a great sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in human flesh. The eternal Son of the Father, whom the Father loved, would take on our flesh through the flesh and blood of the, think about this, adding that human nature, think about that, to the divine nature, eternal. It had to be this way, as Burkhoff said, to keep him from the stain of original sin and become our righteousness. This is God himself come down. This is the eternal son who took on a human nature for us because he's truly human and truly righteous. He's able to bear the penalty. He's able to to pay the penalty for our sins and release us so that we can now enjoy his forgiveness. That's what we need to be kept before us today, beloved, that the Lord answers us in all of our sorrows. When you're confused about life and you're confused about everything happening, all you have to do is look to the cross to see the answer. He bore our iniquities. He carried our sorrows. He came to do what we could never do. Jesus, even taking the name meaning Savior, to bear our sins and establish the throne of David forever. Again, Hosea 3. Love your wife again, even though she's loved by others and has committed adultery. Love her as I, the Lord, love Israel, even though they've turned to other gods. And then listen to this in Hosea 3. In the same way, the Israelites will wait a long time without kings or officials, without sacrifices or sacred stones, without ephods or family idols. After that, The Israelites will turn and look to the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord for his blessings in the last days. That's you. That's you. Hosea 2.19. Israel, I'll make you my wife. I'll be true and faithful. I'll show you constant love 
and mercy and make you mine forever. That's the new covenant in his blood. So Joseph does this. He does not know his wife until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, meaning Savior. This is what the world needs today. This is the hope of the Israel of God, of all his people. And you know how he characterizes you today to close this out. Think about this. You who were an unfaithful bride, you who were and could not wear the white dress, he put a clean robe on you and calls you a chaste virgin, pure, undefiled. Rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, Revelation 19. And his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe her with fine linen, pure and bright. So when you think of Christmas this year and you remember and think about all that you're celebrating, remember this first and foremost. Remember what the genealogies told you. Remember him who would say for you, it is finished. Remember him who said, now to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to our to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Remember your Savior, even though you were an unfaithful bride, loved you and washed you and saved you. And may that make you run to him and live no longer in the adulteries that got us into this mess to begin with. This story tells of his love. Believe it. And let's pray to him and thank him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvel of your plan and your love to us. We see that captured here in Joseph's struggle, how he loved his bride, and how you, O oh Lord, Love your bride. Thank you for redeeming her and washing her and cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And as we, Lord, contemplate these things in our lives and think of sin and sorrow and misery, may we see how great your love has been. May we be a, a people who respond by believing our Savior, trusting our Savior, returning to. If there's anyone here today who's living in darkness and living in sin, may they return today, this day, to their Savior and hear the gracious calls, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We are so thankful for our true husband and thankful for the redemption of his bride, the church. And in that great confidence today, we bless the wonderful name of the Lord who is our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.